Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. No one likes waiting. One of the most difficult periods of waiting that I've experienced was engagement. You can probably relate if you've been engaged. It was only four months for us, but it felt like the longest four months of my life. This is because we had to plan a wedding. We had to do it really fast again. We only had four months to get married. And on top of wedding planning, Stephanie, actually, Stephanie and I actually had to raise $60,000 in support so that we could work for a local college ministry. And yet despite both of those things, planning a wedding and raising support, the hardest part by far was waiting. We had to wait to be married. We had to wait to live together. And we had to wait to not have to say goodbye at the end of every date. But the best part about being engaged was that marriage was at the end of it. That we were able to have joy during engagement because we knew that, we, that it was going to give way to something better. And while our text this morning is going to deal with this topic of waiting, that we've already hit on it a little bit in our study through Habakkuk, but our closing chapter is going to show us what it looks like to wait well. I appreciate Mark's prayer that he, he hit on those themes. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in chapter 3. So if you're flipping through your Bible, uh, Habakkuk is before Zephaniah, and it's after Nahum. If you're at home and you don't have a Bible, just feel free to, you can search Habakkuk 3 on Google, and I'm sure the text will pop up. Well, if you're there with me, let's, let's begin reading in chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So we're going to be in chapter 3, so big 3, and then small 1. So let's read this together. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Temin, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the earth, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land in Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath of your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and wreathed, and the raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth his voice, and it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. 
at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from, fr- from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word. And Father, we know that it will accomplish all of your purposes. So would we trust your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you take notes, make sure to get this down. Kids, if you printed off one of our service sheets, uh, make sure to write this down in that top box. This is my sermon in a sentence. It says this, Believers, wait on the Lord by remembering His works and rejoicing in His salvation. So one more time, believers wait on the Lord by remembering His works and rejoicing in His salvation. So in verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that we need to remember God's works. So again, in verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that we need to remember God's works. And then in verses 16 through 19, we're going to see that we need to rejoice in God's salvation. So again, remember God's works and rejoice in God's salvation. In this first section, we're going to move pretty quickly. We've got a lot of verses to cover, but then we're going to slow down in the second section. So this is going to be a little bit of a fire hydrant sermon through the first half. So if you catch any cross-references that you didn't get down, just let me know and I I can uh, get those to you later. But let's look at our first point. Remember God's works. So in chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk, we saw Habakkuk's conversation with God. Habakkuk has heard about God's plan to deliver his people and to defeat their enemies. And so now we see Habakkuk sing to God. The revelation of God's glory warrants a response. And there's no better way for Habakkuk to respond than to sing. And this song isn't just intended to be a private devotional. 
that Habakkuk intends for this to be sung by God's people. And so while we don't know for certain, Habakkuk was probably a Levite. And he probably served as a priest. And he probably helped with the singing in the temple. And one reason we can assume this is because of extra-biblical literature. Uh, but another reason we can assume this is because of verses 1 and 19. They show us that this chapter was used for singing in the temple. So verse 1 says that this is a prayer according to Shijanoth. And so we don't really know what that term means, but we do see it in Psalm 7. And so like Psalm 7, Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3 was intended to be used for corporate worship in the temple. And this is made even clearer in verse 19, because we see that Habakkuk tells the choir master to play it with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk wanted God's people to sing his words. And he wanted them to know his message and to internalize it in their hearts. That that's what singing does. It gets those words from our head into our hearts. And so we need to internalize this message as well. We need it to dwell in our hearts richly. But what's going on in this prayer? What does Habakkuk want his audience and us to know? Well, look with me at verse 2. Habakkuk says that he's heard the report of the Lord. So the question we need to ask is, what is this report that he's heard? Well, I think the next line helps us in that. It says, Your work, O Lord, do I fear. The report is of God's work. And this is a report of God's work in the past and in the future. And this will become clearer as we work through our passage. But notice, though, that this report of God's work causes Habakkuk to fear. And that word for fear can also be translated as awe. So as Habakkuk reflects on God's work, it affects him down to his very soul. That's what true awe does. Yet Habakkuk knows that there are those in Judah who don't fear the Lord, that they're not in awe of him. Because of this, they don't desire to obey the Lord's commands. We saw this in chapter 1. That many in Judah had rejected God's word. And because of this, justice had gone forth perverted. They didn't seek to love God and their neighbor. And yet despite this, Habakkuk is petitioning for the Lord to once again save his people. He's calling on the Lord to act in the same ways that he's done in the past. And this is why he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. When he says it, he's referring to the works of God. He's asking God to revive them. He's asking for God to do these works again and to make them known. And Habakkuk knows from his conversation with God that Judah is about to be destroyed and taken into exile. That God's wrath is going to come upon them. And God's rightly going to judge them. Yet Habakkuk asks God to remember mercy. That even though they're going to be judged for a time, Habakkuk is calling on God to save his covenant people from their enemies once again. And so Habakkuk has seen God do this in the past. 
And he wants God to do it again in the future. And so we see an answer to Habakkuk's prayer in a vision that he's going to receive. We're going to see this in verses 3 through 15, that Habakkuk's going to see what's called a theophany. And so if you're unfamiliar with that term, a theophany is a visible manifestation of God to humankind or to a man. So you might think of, uh, there's a couple other theophanies you might think of in Scripture. One that might come to your mind is Isaiah 6. We covered that uh, several months ago in our study in Isaiah. And so Isaiah received a vision from the Lord where he saw him on his throne with angelic beings flying around him and that his robe and glory filled the whole temple. And this was a vision that brought Isaiah to his knees. You might also think of the end of the book of Job. The Job questions God, and then God comes to Job. And God responds to Job with a glorious look at his majesty in creation. And this again humbles Job. And so something similar is happening with Habakkuk. That he's getting a view of God's future judgment against those who oppose him and his people. Yet this theophany about future judgment is going to allude to God's past judgment against Israel's enemies. And so as we look through this theophany, we can see that it's broken into three sections. In each section, we see allusions to God's work in the past to describe His future judgment. And so this first section is verses 3-7. through seven. And in these verses, we'll see God return to Sinai. So the text says that God came from Temin, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And so this language might be a little bit lost in us at first, but Habakkuk's original audience would have known that Temin and Mount Paran were geographical markers that pointed them to the wilderness of south, the wilderness south of Israel. And so what's significant about this southern wilderness? Well, this is where Mount Sinai is located. And Mount Sinai is where God displayed His glory to the Israelites and gave them the Mosaic Law. And so in Habakkuk's vision, he sees the Lord once again appearing at Mount Sinai. And similar to Exodus, Habakkuk sees an awesome display of God's glory. Listen to what the text says. It says, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So while this scene is similar to Sinai, it's greater in magnitude. The glory of the Lord isn't just seen by his people. His glory can be seen in all of the heavens and all of the earth. And this glory is like a light that we can't even imagine. That it's a pure glory that can only belong to the one true God. And so this would be awesome to see, but it would be terrifying. And what's even a little bit more terrifying is that the Lord isn't staying at Sinai, that He's moving from the south towards His people to save them from their enemies. And so the Lord here is like, kind of like Liam Neeson in that movie, Taken, if you've seen it. You know that his, his daughter has been taken captive by his enemies, and he's going to destroy everything in his path to save her. 
And we can see this in verse 5, that pestilence and plague are the Lord's weapons that He's using against the nations as He goes. And this language is used here to remind Habakkuk's audience of the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians. Yet it isn't just the nations that are being taken out by God. That in verse 6, we even see that the mountains and hills can't stand in His way. It says the mountains are scattered and the hills are sunken low. And as we move on into verse 7, we see that as the Lord moves away from Sinai, that He moves towards Midian. And if you remember from the book of Numbers and Judges, Midian is an old enemy of Israel. And you see Kishon there that they're probably a people group from Midian. They might be nomads. Maybe that's why it says that we see that their tents are shaking. And so while they might have been a formidable enemy for Israel, they're no match for the glory of the Lord. Their tents are afflicted by Him in their path, and their curtains tremble in His sight. And so nothing can stand in the path of the Lord. And so this brings us to our second section of the theophany. In verses 8 through 11, we're going to see Habakkuk addressing the Lord directly. That he's not saying God and Lord more anymore. That he, now he's saying you and your in reference to God. And in addressing the Lord directly, he's going to proclaim God's lordship over all of the cosmos. And so listen to this language. Starting in verse 8. It says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? on your chariot of salvation. And so Habakkuk is showing God's power over bodies of water. And this isn't a new idea. That again, this language calls back to when God parted the Red Sea and when He parted the Jordan. And he wants the faithful in Judah to remember that seas and rivers are no match for God. He can part them with merely His Word. And He can lead His people through them on the path to salvation. Yet God isn't just in control over bodies of water. That He even has power over the storms of the sky. The commentaries believe that this arrow language that we see uh, in verse 9, that it's an image for lightning. And so we tend to think of lightning as random, but this isn't so with God. That every bolt of lightning is under the control of the Lord. And so he's a master marksman, if you will, that his arrows of lightning always hit their mark. And this storm imagery is pushed even further in verse 9 that says, you split the earth with rivers. And so even though God has appeared in a desert landscape, he's made a massive storm that causes rivers to be produced. And so even the arid landscapes can't stop God and His storms. And verse 10 shows us again that God has control over the mountains and raging waters. And so again, they can't stand in His way. Everything is getting leveled by the Lord as He moves. And in verse 11, we see that God doesn't just have control over the things of the earth that even the very sun and moon submit to His Word. 
And this language here would remind Habakkuk's audience of what God had done in Joshua 10, 12-13. That if you remember, God made the sun and moon stand still so that the Israelites would have more time to defeat the Amorites. And so God's made the sun and the moon. He's made everything, in fact. And He has control over when the sun and moon rise and when they set. And so Habakkuk wants his readers to know that their God has control over everything. He's the creator. The entire cosmos bows to his will. Yet it's important for us to remember here that this vision isn't just looking to the past. That it's looking towards the final day of God's judgment. And this judgment isn't just against mankind. That God's redemption is a cosmic event. That sin doesn't just affect us. That all of the creation has been tainted by sin. This is why Romans 8, 22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the creation is groaning for redemption. It eagerly awaits God's return to remove the stain of sin. And so as Pastor Jeff said a couple weeks ago, God's not going to annihilate His creation, but He is going to strip it down to its studs. And so why is He going to do this? So that God can make a new heaven and a new earth that isn't tainted by sin. And all of the evil and sin that Habakkuk lamented will be done away with. But the wicked won't just be judged for their sin. That the effects of sin will be removed from all of the creation. And this is why we sing this at Christmas time. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, for as the curse is found. And so this brings us to our last section of the Theophany in verses 12 through 15. It's here that we see God bring judgment on the enemies of God's people. And so look with me at verses 12 and 13. It says, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And so in Habakkuk's vision, the Lord again, He's marching through the earth to attack the nations that have oppressed His people. And in light of the rest of the book, it seems that the Chaldeans are in view here. That these are the Babylonians. They're the ones that are coming to devour Judah. We can see that in verses 14, verse 14. But they're going to be the ones who are threshed. And that word can also be translated as trampled down. And we saw this in the five woes last time. That even though the Babylonians took advantage of others for their own gain, the Lord isn't going to let them get away with it. The Lord is going to save His people. And so listen to this language about the Lord's attack. He's going to crush the head of the house of the wicked. This is probably in reference to the king of Babylon. And He's also going to pierce the heads of His warriors. And so God is going to crush the Babylonian king and his army. And we know that this prophecy was fulfilled. 
because the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians in 539 B.C. Yet there seems to be something more going on here. I think this head-crushing language points back to Joshua chapter 10. And Habakkuk's audience would have picked up on this, that after capturing the Amorite kings, Joshua had his men put their feet on the necks of the kings. They then put them to death and hung them from trees. And so on one hand, Habakkuk's audience would have been encouraged by this because God was going to do something similar to Babylon. He's going to crush the heads of their leaders and their armies. Yet there's something even more amazing going on with this language. That this head-crushing language looks all the way back to the garden. And so you might remember God's promises to the serpent. God says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so God promi- God's promising that Eve's offspring would have his heel bruised. But in doing so, he would crush the head of the serpent. And so Genesis 3.15, Joshua 10, and Habakkuk 3 look forward to an offspring who will put an end to the serpent, who is Satan, and all that follow him and are a part of his kingdom. And the rest of the Old Testament shows us that this serpent head crusher isn't just some random guy, that he's going to be a messianic king from the line of David. He's to be the anointed one, the Christ. And the New Testament shows us that this Christ is Jesus, that he's the eternal son of God who took on flesh to conquer our enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And how did he do this? He crushed the head of the serpent by going to the cross, that he was cursed on the tree for us. And yet because of his obedience, the Father raised him from the dead. And through his death and resurrection, Christ dealt Satan with a mortal wound. While Christ's heel was bruised, he crushed the head of the serpent. And so you might be thinking, that sounds great, but it doesn't seem like Satan's gone. He's still tempting and deceiving the world. And while this is true, Satan is bleeding out. His weapons, sin and death, have been defeated in Christ's death and resurrection. And there's coming a day when Christ will return to judge Satan and all of the wicked who follow him. And on that day, Christ's splendor will cover the heavens. And all of the earth will be filled with his praise. And mountains and rivers will be laid waste in his path. And he will be the one who tramples the sea. And he will judge the nations with the word of his mouth. And on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so all of us, will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, will we make that confession before it's too late? And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, let me plead with you to turn to Christ today. 
He's not asking you to clean yourself up first. You don't have to get it all together to come to Him. But if you're weary from your sin, if you're weary from rebelling against Him, then hear these words from the mouth of King Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the conquering king of Habakkuk 3 is also gentle and lowly in heart. And he takes those who are weak and weary from rebelling against him, and he makes them new. And so, friend, turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. And if you're a believer, then Habakkuk's prayer is for you too. It's not just for Habakkuk's original audience. And so as we reflect on God's future justice, we need to remember God's work in the past. That God has been faithful in the past to do mighty works to save His people. And this is further magnified for us in the cross. That even though you and I were God's enemies, God saved us from His wrath in the cross of His Son. And the penalty of your sin was paid for in full. And so, believer, when the evil one brings his arrows of accusations against you, remember the cross. When he tells you that God can never love a sinner like you, remember the love of God on full display at Calvary. So, brothers and sisters, let's help one another remember the cross. That if you're buried under shame, run to other brothers and sisters who can remind you of what Christ has done. If you're clinging to unconfessed sin, go to another brother or sister in this church and confess your sin. Why? So that they can point you back to the cross. And so, North Point Church, we need to be in the business of reminding one another of the cross. And we do this while we also pray for God to revive His works, that we know that He's leading us on a greater exodus to a greater promised land. And so let's pray that that day comes soon. Well, this brings us to our second point. We need to rejoice in God's salvation. So we've seen Habakkuk reflect on God's future justice, but now he's going to recognize that he needs to wait for it to happen. And so look with me at verse 16. It says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. So Habakkuk's whole person is shaken up by this vision. That his body is trembling and his lips are quivering. And so he can feel it in his very bones. And so I can't imagine an experience like this. The only time that I've even maybe even felt something similar was 
being in a car crash or seeing a car crash. You probably know that feeling that your chest tightens up, your adrenaline kicks in, and your soul is plagued with countless anxieties. And what Habakkuk is, is experiencing is like that times a thousand. So he's just seen a glimpse of the Lord's glory. And so you see, visions of God's glory are not a fun experience. That they take a physical and spiritual toll on the prophet. We, see, we even saw this last week with the prophet Isaiah. We see the same thing with, with Daniel. Yet this awesome experience with God leaves Habakkuk changed. That the one who said, how long in chapter 1? And who waited on the Lord to answer his complaint in chapter 2? Now says, yet I will quietly wait. Notice that it says, quietly wait. Well, this is translated as two words in English, that it's really just one word in the Hebrew. And this word can be translated as to rest or to sit down. And so we can see here that the one who is in anguish over the evil that he saw now rests in what God has promised. He quietly waits. Notice what Habakkuk is quietly waiting for, though, that he's waiting for the day of trouble to come upon people who have invaded them. And so what Habakkuk is waiting for doesn't come without trials and pain. The Babylonians are going to invade them and take them into exile. And we know that eventually the Babylonians were taken out by the Persians. But we don't even know if Habakkuk lived to see that day. That he very well could have been like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died two weeks before his concentration camp was liberated. Yet even so, Habakkuk was a changed man. He trusted that the Lord's justice would come at the right time, even if he wouldn't live to see that day. And so, brothers and sisters, we, like Habakkuk, are awaiting people. We understand that the local church is an assembly of the kingdom of God on earth. And so we're exiles from our home with our king. And so we wait for the consummation of that kingdom, that it's been inaugurated by Christ, but we wait for its consummation. But in this kingdom, when it's consummated, there will be no more sin, there will be no more sickness and no death. And there will be no attacks on this kingdom, for all of its enemies will be put away. And the best part about this kingdom is that Christ will be there. And we will be with our King forever in peace. But now we wait and long for that day. So what should our posture be? look like now? How do we become a people who wait well? Look with me at verse 17. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You must remember that the economy of Habakkuk's day 
was based around agriculture. So we can see this reflected in the language he uses. He talks about fig trees, fruits, olives, fields, flocks, and herds. But do you see the tragedy here? There are no figs. There are no fruits. There are no olives, no flocks, and no herds. And so Habakkuk gives us an image of an economy that is totally crumbled. And so Judah, based off this prophecy, is going to be removed from a land flowing with milk and honey to a foreign land with hunger and poverty. And this wouldn't have been a surprise to them that God had promised in the Mosaic Covenant that if they continually disobeyed His covenant stipulations, that He would remove them from the land. And so Judah is experiencing these circumstances because of their disobedience. So what hope do they have in the mess that they've made? They have God's promises. God has promised to deliver them from their captors. This is all His mercy. They don't deserve it. But God willingly gives it. This is why Habakkuk says this in verse 8. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So why can Habakkuk rejoice and have joy in all, all of these circumstances? It's because Yahweh is his God. He can delight in the God of his salvation. And so even though there isn't food to put on the table, he knows that the Lord will rescue his people. He knows that he can delight in God. And so what does this joy look like? Look at verse 19. He says, God the Lord is his strength. Habakkuk's strength isn't found in himself. It's not found in white-knuckling it. It's found in the Lord and His promises. And so when everything seems to be crumbling around him, God is able to make Habakkuk's feet like the deer. He's able to make Habakkuk tread on high places. So what Habakkuk is trying to say here is that his footing is sure. God won't let him fall. And because God is Habakkuk's strength, Habakkuk can have confidence in all circumstances. And so, brothers and sisters, we too can walk in this confidence that every promise that God has made finds its yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And what Habakkuk saw in low definition, we now see in high definition through Christ. So, brothers and sisters, our joy also looks like confidence in the God of our salvation that He won't let us fall away from Him. We're safe and secure in the love of God because He bought us with the blood of His Son. And so because of this, we can rejoice in every circumstance, both the good and the bad. We don't have to just look to Habakkuk to see that this is true. That this command to rejoice is found all throughout the New Testament. That Matthew 5.12 tells us, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Luke 10.20 says, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Romans 12.12 says, Rejoice in hope. Philippians 3.1 says, Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We just studied this. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18 says this, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so there are many more places in the Old and New Testament that we could go to see this. But brothers and sisters, rejoicing isn't an option for God's people. That we must rejoice because God is the God of our salvation. And yet this doesn't mean that we're always happy. This doesn't mean that the deep weight of depression won't cling to your chest. And this doesn't mean that you won't drink bitter cups of sorrow. And so even though we'll experience various trials and suffering, we can rejoice in all circumstances because our salvation is found in Christ. And Christ is not asking us to do what He hasn't done. We saw this in Hebrews 12, that Jesus endured the cross in shame. How? By looking to the joy set before Him. Our Lord endured sorrow and shame. He didn't grow bitter. He didn't say a mumbling word. He rejoiced. So I wonder how you're doing this week. Have your thoughts and actions been marked by rejoicing? Or by bitterness and complaining? Have you thanked the Lord for His new mercies? Or have you grumbled about what He's withheld from you? And I know that rejoicing has probably been difficult for many of us this past month. That some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us are battling loneliness. And I'm sure that all of us in some form or fashion have been battling with pride. Despite all of this, we can rejoice that our joy is founded on an immovable foundation. Our joy is rooted in a Savior who doesn't change. And our trials shouldn't cause us to flee from Him in bitterness or complaining. Our trials should cause us to one to run once again to His heart. So brothers and sisters, God doesn't withhold or take things away from us because he hates us. No, he loves us and he strips away our false securities so that we'll realize that Christ is enough. And so our bitterness and complaining show that we're clinging to false securities. But our rejoicing shows that we're clinging to Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves what we're clinging to this morning. Are we clinging to our job security? Are we clinging to Christ? Are we clinging to our image? Are we clinging to Christ? Are we clinging to our marriage or our kids or our fiance? Are we clinging to Christ? Are we clinging to our health? Are we clinging to Christ? God could graciously take all of those things from, away from you. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, will Christ in fellowship with him be enough? And so, brothers and sisters, if you're looking for a reason to rejoice, remember this. You could lose everything in this world, but still have everything in Christ. And so we have no reason to grow bitter. We have no reason to complain. We have all of the reason to rejoice. Our Father has given us everything in Christ. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, you too can have that joy if you trust in Christ today. God doesn't owe you this joy. You haven't done anything to earn it. But it's a free gift of His grace. So trust in Christ today. Well, I'll conclude with this. You probably know the famous hymn writer William Cooper from his songs like There's a Fountain Filled with Blood or Oh For a Closer Walk. We sing both of those regularly here. But what you might not know is that he struggled with severe depression for all of his life. And he even tried to commit suicide several times. And so he was no stranger to grief and sorrow. Yet God often comforted our depressed brother through his word. And so he wrote these lyrics in response to Habakkuk 3. Listen to this. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but he will bear us through. He who gives the lilies clothing will clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, no creature but is fed, and he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wonted fruit should bear, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abideth, his praise shall tune my voice, for while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Brothers and sisters, we are a people who wait, but we don't have to wait without joy. We can rejoice in all circumstances, knowing that these days will come to pass and will give way to eternal joy in fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. And so we now call on Him to revive His works. We call on Him to lead us on a greater exodus that will take us to a greater promised land. And so as we wait for that day, remember God's works and rejoice in His salvation. Brothers and sisters, let's pray.